Whoever speaks of Europe is wrong is a geographical expression. Otto von Bismarck. Welcome to this week's episode of Warfare, Advancement, and Revisionism. My name is Preston Floyd, and as always, I'm your host. I'd like to thank everyone for joining me this week. Uh, if you're a newcomer, welcome. I hope you listen to this episode and enjoy it, and you'll have a good time going back through our backlog of episodes. And if, of course, if you're a returning listener, thank you, as always. I really appreciate the support. And I would like to say I'm super pleased with the response and feedback I got to last week's episode, especially on YouTube. It's already my most viewed video, uh, over 100 and, and I think 50 downloads right now. It, it even beat out my old Conan Barbarian episode on YouTube. Uh, so that's that's something. Um, but despite all that, uh, you know, positive uh, feedback and viewership, I did have a couple of things. Uh, that I want to point out from that episode that I meant to speak about, but I didn't really do a good, uh, I didn't get to include either because, um, I meant to emphasize them more, but forgot to, and, uh, there were some things I want to talk about, um, of the potential technological innovations that some Aboriginal groups, uh, made. Uh, now, first, I mentioned the Tasmanians, um, but well, before I go into that, uh, this episode is mainly going to be kind of like a overview, a general overview episode of Europe. That's what it's for. But um, initially, this was—I was planning on this episode to be kind of short. Um, but with this going over the Australia stuff um, that I missed, it, it'll probably be a little bit longer than I had initially planned. But it's going to cover more than just kind of the general overview of Europe. Uh, and what we'll be looking at for this next, I guess, part of this season. Um, but I'll go into detail a little bit, a uh, little bit more about that later. But l- let me get back to Tasmania and uh, the Aboriginal technology stuff that I meant to cover last time, but didn't. So um, talked about the Tasmanians, but I didn't really go into too much detail about them. Uh, and the reason for that, it is very hard to give an in-depth description of these people because they're completely isolated by 8000 BC. And the records we have about them uh, don't appear until after the British encountered them. And um, already, you know, just that encounter and the British landing on Tasmania um, drastically upended uh, Aboriginal Tasmanian society and culture in general. And then through both incidental and direct actions, uh, in some cases bordering on a genocide or being close enough to a genocide that it wouldn't make much of a difference if it was or wasn't one. Uh, but that's all stuff we'll, we'll talk about in the future. Um, but from now on, uh, for, but from what little we know about the Tasmanians, um, they had been living in Tasmania since around 40,000 years ago. And they were, like the rest of the Sahulian descendants, uh, fairly sedentary hunter-gatherers. And had probably been fairly isolated from the rest of Australia before the sea levels rose. Um, There, of course, I'm sure was some level of bat migration or trade. um, But, again, not a lot. Um, 
Uh, and because of this, they develop their own kind of religious traditions and language and seem to not share much of an overlap with Australian Aborigines in that regard. Um, but they do seem to share a lot of tool-making traditions with them. And we will talk more about that next season. Um, and a lot of what we know, unfortunately, about the Tasmanians um, in terms of religion is very bare bones. Um, again, I mentioned that there was a... Uh, basically, depending on your definition of genocide, you know, an actual genocide or, you know an event or events, I should say, that were close enough to a genocide to not make much of a difference. There are very few uh, as um, Tasmanian Aboriginal people left, uh, and I believe all of them have some level of European ancestry. Um, and there's kind of a problem in the Aboriginal Tasmanian community because uh, there is some pushback on who qualifies and who is actually, you know, the legitimate, I guess, descending group of the various Tasmanian tribes. And uh, that's all stuff we'll have to talk about in the future. But um, a lot of the traditions and things we have about these people is completely um, filtered through a lens of events and interactions um, with the British and the Australians uh, that were moving in, or the British uh, descended Australians moving into the area and, you know, again, completely upending Aboriginal society. Um, but that's all stuff we'll, we'll talk about later. Now, uh, there was some big points about the Aboriginal, I guess, um, lifestyle that I meant to include last time, but I didn't because either um, I just skipped over it in the section of my notes, um, and I completely missed it and forgot to talk about it. I knew as I was ending that episode, I feel like there's more to talk about. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and just bring that up here. Um, so, um, like all humans prior, um, the Aboriginal peoples attempted to control the, their environment. Um, they would do things like, you know, use fire to burn away parts of the forest to clear paths and drive the animals to ambushes, etc. Um, they would also use fire to, like, um, they would store occasionally, like, store food in, like, these hollowed-out trees that had, um, you know, maybe been uh, struck by lightning or, you know, they had cut holes in and, like, dug the wood out of the interior and use them for like um, furnaces or like fireplaces is a better term uh, for cooking all that kind of stuff um, however by being more sedentary um, they would expand on this kind of skill set and begin to practice other methods of controlling the land and its resources uh, and this isn't, again, unique to the Aboriginal people. Uh, we, we've seen groups in the Middle East and parts of East Asia do this too. However, the Aboriginal people seem to never quite make the leap to full-scale domestication. Um, they don't begin to actively select traits from the wild plants they're planting and harvesting. Um, they 
they do do it in kind of a broader sense, but they're not they're not quite as picky about uh, the plants they're tending to. Uh, and some of these plants are um, there are things like uh, nightshade uh, plant that's kind of related to tomatoes. I think they're just called Australian tomatoes. Um, there are you know wild tubers, um, uh, flowering tubers. I think with like yellow, almost daisies. Uh, they've got millet. Uh, this is a wild millet variety, of course, related to uh, the Asian variety of millet that we talked about when we were talking about East Asia. Of course, very distantly related at this point because, again, they've been isolated from each other. But, you know, they do have a common ancestor. Um, so, and they spread these wild plants, uh, you know, and harvest them as well and use them in similar fashions to um, peoples that are using the wild varieties of um, crops closer to them. And of course, you know, they get better at using them the same way these other people in Asia and Europe and Africa are. Um, uh, but instead of, I guess... Uh, instead of controlling the land, plants, and animals, uh, they controlled the land kind of at a very large scale. Um, and they tend to treat the plants and animals with a more, um, I guess, laissez-faire attitude uh, might be the best way to describe it. Um, they would essentially kind of... Uh, they were more interested in controlling all of their environment, whereas you know people who are beginning to develop agriculture, um, they are they are controlling areas that they know that they can grow crops in. They're not quite as interested in controlling um, other parts of their environment, at least not at the level that the Aboriginal people appear to do. At least not at this early date. Um, and even in some cases to later dates. Um, so, for instance, uh, the Aboriginal people, when they found a, a place uh, that they could, you know, conceivably see a lot of return for planting, you know, wild seeds of plants they had picked or, or storing, uh, you know, seeds or things like that, they would essentially level the land. Uh, you know, they clear away trees, dig up roots, uh, move like rocks, uh, till soil to an extent. You know, they, they use uh, sticks to dig, um, which, again, not unique to Aboriginal people. People all over the world use that before uh, you get a shovel. I mean, technically speaking, a shovel is a digging stick, too. It just has a very wider um, end, uh, whereas the digging sticks, you know, they're, they're just essentially sticks that are larger and you know give you weight to be able to break through the surface and dig down into the soil um, and then of course once they had broken up all that stuff they would uh, plant their seeds or tubers uh, and then in the area surrounding these zones they would let uh, the forests or shrublands grow uh, kind of you know, uh, letting them, you know, kind of flourish uh, without them trying to harvest any specific material from those 
places um, at a large scale until they absolutely had to. They would essentially leave these areas alone and let them regrow naturally. Um, and, the, you know, but one thing they were doing with these uh, forest and savanna regions, and of course, what these regions were depended, of course, where the Aboriginal people were living. Some places, you know, are more suited to uh, shrubland or savannas almost, and some regions are better suited to um, more grass or uh, foresty areas. But they would allow these uh, these zones, uh, these plant zones, um, or forest or savanna uh, zones to draw animals in. And tr they would try to keep those animals, of course, from moving in numbers large enough to the region. Uh, or, excuse me, they would try to you know, prevent the animals drawn to the forests and savanna regions from getting to the regions that they had planted their seeds or their wild crops or what have you. Um, so they would almost encircle their croplands with uh, forest areas. Uh, one, it would allow them, you know, uh, kind of, again, that large-scale control to prevent animals from moving in um, where their crops were going by drawing them to these um, areas where these plants are growing that, you know, aren't quite as suitable for human uh, uh, uses, uh, may not be able to eat them as much, um, they may just taste bad, might make humans sick, uh, but the animals, of course, eating those plants are able to utilize the calories, and then, of course, the humans can utilize the calories by killing and eating the animals. Um, and they will also dig wells and holes um, for catching rainwater. Uh, in arid areas uh, to try to, again, make these little breaker zones, places that will distract animals from going to your cropland. Water, of course, being more important than uh, food in most situations. Um, and, of course, they would use the water sources as well. That's great. And, of course, it, it does encourage, these water sources do encourage certain, you know, levels of plant growth too. Uh, so this kind of arrest aridification and um, uh, desertification, however you want to uh, phrase that. And this, again, they're doing this in wide areas. Like there's not just like a small little couple of square um, feet or square yard farm. These are, these are vast areas. So we're talking um, uh, kilometers wide or uh, you know, maybe even larger than that. But then, eventually, of course, just because if you focus an area of land too much on one crop without doing proper rotation or fallowing of the soil or don't have enough, like, uh, fertilizing efforts, uh, you know, returns eventually diminish and the land becomes useless for a period of time. So... Uh, what they would do is, uh, when this happened, uh, they would uh, shift, essentially, the areas uh, that they were planting in. They would uh, burn the land that they were evacuating, essentially, to kind of an ash. And then uh, they would probably um, proceed to, like, 
you know, get the ash back into the soil. And then they would, to kind of encourage growth, they plant probably some um, anchoring grasses or some shrubs, maybe some trees in some areas to kind of, um, you know, help get the uh, the nutrients that had been um, tilled into the soil uh, kind of accelerate the growth, you know, planting some things, hoping that some other stuff will kind of piggyback off that. And then they would cut down sections of the forests or shrublands in the neighboring area. And of course they need that wood for fuel, tools, what have you. And then they would begin to, again, flatten the land, make it suitable for large scale uh, planting and all that kind of stuff. Now, um, that's how they would use land in kind of like a large, broad sense. Uh, another way that they're controlling land is by essentially um, trying to, uh, I guess, control the water sources. I've already talked about how they would dig wells and um, essentially drainage um, pits for rainwater. Um but they would also, you know, in some ways, control rivers. Um, there are a number of sizable rivers in parts of Australia. They were, of course, very important for a large number of Aboriginal groups. Um, I know that some people, when they think of Aborigines, they just think they're out in the desert, you know, living kind of that uh, savanna-esque lifestyle of some people over in Africa. But no, I mean, there, there are very large rivers in Australia, uh, and they have a lot of uh, good... Uh, land around them uh, and there were of course aboriginal people who would take advantage of that and live along those um, those rivers and they would of course eat uh, things like fish and shellfish if they were on the coast or not, not far from it um, but they would um, again they would use these rivers to help them live and one of the ways they would do this they would dig uh, channels um, near uh, like rivers but they would kind of dig them kind of almost downhill not directly connecting them to the river they're not trying to create net, you know irrigation the way we would think of it but essentially they would dig these channels to depressions um, or some cases man-made in some cases um natural depressions uh yeah they can see like hey this this land's kind of like a little small uh, valley uh and they would um you know wait for rainy season and then when the rains came uh the river water level would rise and then these channels that they had dug would fill with water and then the channel would carry the water to these depressions and essentially they'd be creating small ponds or uh maybe uh, large ponds or in some cases maybe even a small lake or something like that um, and of course you know that water is usable but hopefully you get fish in it as well and you, you create these kind of little uh, stocks of uh, fish uh, and things like that now of course you know the environment being what it is in Australia even you know if you have good water sources nearby uh, if they're not constantly getting enough rain these are going to dry up and this has happened several times I talked about the Mungo man um, he his remains were found in what was a lake bed you know this was a natural lake um, 
but it is something that is happening to Australia all over. So while these, you know, these um, man-made ponds are, are useful and helpful, um, if they're not getting enough rain, they're not going to be viable in super long term. And that probably happened in a couple of periods in Australian history where there just was enough rain uh, to really support the kind of population that these well-watered areas would make. So, of course, that kind of leads to, uh, in some cases, infighting, in some cases, migration, uh, etc. And in some cases, I'm sure, just, just out-and-out famine. Which is really the cause for the migration and the infighting. Uh, now, another thing they would do is they would create uh, large-scale fish traps in rivers. Uh, there's a, a very famous uh, example uh, in um, Bar uh, Barwarna, which is near the Barwan River, which is part of like the Darling River river system. Uh, but what essentially they did was they took a fairly large section of the lake and they created um, they would pile stones up um, and create uh kind of almost these spiral or line formations um, that when large numbers of fish were coming through um, probably for like a spawning type event or if you know they just knew that you know fish would be swimming by they'd keep a close track of these little structures they had built and then they would either throw you know things like uh, nets or just clog up the holes with uh stones that the fish came in because the fish were you know swimming around in these kind of large spiral or line areas and they expected to find a way out but they didn't and then they would just kind of close the holes that the fish came in through and of course that helped them uh, spear them collect them things like that um yeah so those are um those are some of the ways that they really adapted to their environment at a large scale. Um, now, uh, the Aboriginal people in the area claim that this structure is 40,000 years old. Um, but this does show one of the big flaws with oral traditions and histories. Um, I felt like last week I did a pretty good job of explaining you know, what the strength of an oral history tradition is. Um, but also... You know, I didn't really go too much into the weaknesses, and that's that's one of the big flaws with oral traditions and histories. Um, and that's the tendency for precise dating to get completely scuffed, and almost immediately. Like, um, you know, you, you don't generally think about, you know, how long altogether that your grandparents, your parents, you all live. Like, what's the maximum coverage of that area? Uh, in terms of like a timeline, if you think of time as just you know a linear time period, I mean that if you're if you're lucky and everything's good, you're again you're covering 150 years. Uh, so you so you might say, okay, well that was my grandfather's grandfather who did this. That's 300 years, but it may not have been 300 years. It may you know it it may have been less than that. So sometimes. Humans have a tendency to overestimate age, and sometimes, you know, events were way more recent than you think. Um, and we'll see examples of that going forward. But um, in this case, the Aboriginal, um, the Aboriginal belief that this structure is that old is 
not correct. Um, at 40,000 years, the section of the lake where this structure was built, um, the water would have been way too high for those structures to catch fish. Fish could just swim over them. Um, and again, like there would be no way for the aboriginals to precisely, you know, plant those stones in place, you know, without like again they'd be they'd be submerged under the water. Uh, there's no way that the aboriginals could see, you know, in that deep of water. Um, with the course the current going, there were probably crocodiles there. Like there's no way for them to be able to build it at that time. Now. That is not to say that they were not making other traps in a similar way at other parts of the river. They easily could have been doing that. Um, and then, of course, when the, you know, the water levels fell and those other places maybe weren't as um, abundant with fish or they're like, oh, wait, this section's way better. Maybe they broke those old stone places up and then moved them to the new place. That is also possible. Um, and of course, you know, the stories from the older places and the story for the new big place, you know, after, again, 150, 200 years, maybe a little bit more, you get the, you get them conflated with each other. And, you know, that maybe makes it seem older than it is as well. Um, but I think, uh, from what geographers or, uh, geologists have said and like, you know, looking at, uh, river levels and like just, uh, studying the rocks and things like that. Um, the oldest the Burr, uh, the Burr Warna structure could have been uh, was 19,000 years ago, which is still very old. I mean, don't get me wrong. That's that's putting this up there in terms of like man-made human construction that we've been able to find. Um, of course, it's also possible it's even as recent as 3,000 years ago, which again, 19,000 years, still very old. And then, you know, uh, even if it's a couple of thousand years younger than that, still very old and very impressive. And even if it is just as young as 3,000 years ago, I mean, these people don't have, you know, a lot of technological advances uh, that other places uh, in the world do. But they're still managed to, managing to create like a large-scale fish farm uh, in the wild with just stone. Like, that's, that's pretty fucking impressive, like, all things considered. So, yeah, um, just take, make of that what you will. <laughs> so, um, all right, uh, so that's kind of the big points that I wanted to go over when talking about, um, the aboriginals that I missed the last time. Um, and, of course, we will return to these people next season. And um, I'll probably talk about um, their plants and things like that. Um, oh, in, ter in terms of the animal domestication, I almost did forget something. Um, Australia is not home to a lot of really great animals for domestication. Um, as far as I know, the only thing that they get eventually that are able to be domesticated is... Um, uh, dogs or dingoes um, but uh, we'll, we'll talk about that later because they're not native to Australia uh, that's one of the big things we'll talk about um, in uh, probably I think the season after next uh, but yeah kangaroos can't be domesticated 
Um, they're huge dicks. They will. They're very aggressive. Um, so yeah, uh, and of course you can't domesticate a crocodile either. Um, cobras, things like that. Well, there are no cobras in Australia, but a ton of venomous snakes. You can't domesticate them. Uh, just not the best place for animal domestication. And I think I talked about the marsupial tiger. Uh, those, of course, probably couldn't be domesticated either. And uh, they were also extremely dangerous to Aboriginal people. Uh, probably not worth the effort to domesticate those. Or even attempt to domesticate those. Um, so yeah. So uh, they're, they're restricting animal movements as best they can. That's, that's how they control animals. Whereas other places, they have animals that are... Their movement's not only able to be controlled, but their breeding, their diet, all that kind of stuff. Um, but again, we'll, we'll cover more of that later. Now, um, next season, we'll probably talk about food preservation, stored methods that the Aboriginals went through, because all that will still be true next season. Uh, there's not a huge revolution in that going forward. But... Um, Let's go ahead and get to, I guess, our overview of Europe to talk about uh, what this next part of this season will look like. So, um, Europe, in terms of um, geography, um, I've kind of defined what we'll consider Europe for the purposes of this show. Um, essentially, everything to the east of the Volga, I'm sorry, everything to the west of the Volga River. Uh, and then, um, uh, of course, to the Atlantic and uh, all that stuff. So, um, now, let's see here. Sorry, just double-checking my notes. Don't want to miss anything here. Now, of course, uh, the Younger Dryas ended just before our current um, season about 700 years prior, give or take. Um, and that cooling event drastically changes Europe's um, ecology uh, from what it had been. Uh, of course, with the, the Ice Age and then, of course, um, those return to Ice Age-esque, uh, you know, um, standards, uh, Europeans are dealing with uh, almost a, you know, a clear step almost all the way to Asia. Uh, there's very little uh, vegetation in this area. Uh, what vegetation you have is probably small, shrubs, the like. You know, you have some trees, of course, but, um, you know, these would be small and very sparse. Uh, you would have uh, a lot of saiga antelopes, um, red deer, those types of things, and they would be much more widespread. And we've already seen in the last season how much red deer were a part of uh, human uh, diet. There are several groups where we find just tons and tons of red deer bones. Um, and of course, there are other animals as well, wild, uh, wild bulls or boss, um, there are, of course, still uh, cave lions in the south, uh, near the Mediterranean basin, uh, I think all over. Um, 
those are the apex predators. I think there are still technically hyenas in the region too. Um, they could have died out by this point, but of course you also have bears, um, and you yeah. So you have a lot of stuff that is just um, you know still preventing you from kind of uh, just being completely dominant over the land. When um, of course that's true in the Middle East too, but. Um, but the uh, different uh, species become more dominant due to this like retreating um, step environment, this this ice age environment. Uh, and you'll see more trees begin to grow um, further north. Um, more land becomes more habitable. Uh, all of these are factors that are playing into uh, humans in the region. And of course, you know, furs aren't going to be quite as important. But they'll still be important because, again, a lot of Europe is very cold during the winter. Um, that's not going to change. But uh, it is something that, you know, is uh, uh, affecting humans. Now, because of the change in the environment and the change in the animals that people are having uh, available, uh, this leads to kind of a change in the culture and in the tools. And you can kind of see that in the archaeological record. So that's one of the big things that we'll be talking about, this change in the, I guess, the human uh, toolkit of uh, Europeans. Um, we will get to the Neolithic in Europe, at least parts of it. Um, not everywhere gets to, like, Neolithic technology at once, and some of the groups that we'll talk about uh, will not be true Neolithic people with, like, microbladelets and things like that. There will be several cultures we're, we're going to talk about, but there are also going to be a wave of migrations into Europe at this time from places we've already talked about, specifically Anatolia. Um, and these people are bringing with them a completely new way of life. They're bringing new plants, uh, and they're going to essentially create a huge revolution in Europe. Uh, uh, or, you know, they're going to be carrying the revolution they started in Asia into Europe. And that's going to, of course, affect a lot of the peoples that are living in Europe that we talked about last season. Uh, big changes are coming, essentially. And uh, how these changes affect people uh, is, of course, like the big kind of um, theme of Europe for the next, probably next three or four centuries, uh, or seasons, essentially. Um, and it's not just people from the Middle East and Anatolia they are moving in. Uh, there are eventually going to be peoples coming in from uh, Central Asia and the kind of the far steppe. Um, yeah, so that's one of the big factors we got to deal with. Um, we will try to talk about the people who live there uh, at you know at the start of the season and then deal with maybe newcomers moving in and how these people or how we think these people interacted what the evidence shows of how these people interacted and um, you know what that means and meant for the time um, now uh, there's a lot more sources in Europe um, that are accessible to me than some of the other places. Uh, and 
that's because there's a lot more English translation of this stuff, but that's also because there is just more material. Um, of course, Europeans uh, were responsible for digging up several sites all over the world, uh, and they kickstarted a lot of stuff. Now, again, we can debate you know how accurate all that was, how Eurocentric it is, yada yada. Uh, and there is some truth to all those arguments, but... You know, they have been doing the same things to themselves, and they've been doing it, you know, pretty much nonstop, with the exception of one or two world wars. Um, they've been doing it almost nonstop again for 400 years, give or take. Maybe a little bit more, maybe a little bit less. Right, so there's a lot of material that they've dug up, that they've found, that they are studying, and they're continuing to study. And we may run into some stuff that is brand new to some people. I know doing research, I I was like, wait a minute, this is not what I was told at all. This is the opposite of what I was told. This this is this is weird. This is new. How did they come up with this? So um, I'm hoping I'm going to reveal a lot of stuff um, that people maybe haven't heard, or you know, shed some light on pe stuff people had heard, uh, but get into a little bit more detail. So. Um, that's not me just trying to, you know, uh, this is not just stuff me trying to make Europe longer than the other places. It's just I have more information to work with. So it might take me a little while to get through Europe compared to like a bigger continent like Asia. Um, there's just more sources I have to work with and uh, all that kind of stuff. So please listen and enjoy. Um, now, I'm not going to... I'm trying to figure out where I want to start exactly with Europe. Um, I would like to maybe go... It might be easier to do it like uh, 8,000 BC overview, then jump forward to 7,000, and then go from 7,000 to the end of our timeline and go region by region that way. Um, because... I don't know. I'm still debating. I might just do region by region and then just move from um, east to west, but uh, I'm still kind of debating. Um, and I've got a little bit of time before I have to figure it out. Um, excuse me. I'm just making sure my notes here. There were some... Uh, I feel like there were some other things I wanted to talk about before. Um before I moved on yeah I think that's I think that's kind of it uh, I went into so much detail with the Australian Tasmanian stuff I feel bad for for maybe calling it here but uh, there's a lot that um, will be said about Europe uh, we'll talk about um, uh, of course migrations from uh, Asia um, and We'll go into them as much detail as we can on the people living here uh, prior to those migrations. Um, it is also during this period that we will, I believe, begin to see pottery uh, in some places in the very south of Europe. Um, but we'll also be talking about some places that uh, culturally are European now, but at the time may be more oriented to uh, maybe Asia or even Africa as the case may be. Um, uh, and we could also be talking about um, some potential leaks to um, 
maybe mythological stories down the line. Uh, that is something I'm looking forward to. Um, but there's a lot to dive into on the European front in terms of these episodes. There's a lot that we still do not know, but we are learning more every year. Um, so I hope you all are ready for that and that you'll get to listen and enjoy. Um, and, uh, yeah, so we'll, we'll take it from there. And I, and of course, I, as soon as I say that, um, I mentioned, uh, the Volga River. No, it is the Urals that are the Ural Mountains. Those are the actual borders of, um, of Europe. Those are the ones uh, that I was thinking of. Uh, the Volga, of course, is a very important river uh, in Europe, um, and especially to prehistoric peoples uh, that will eventually move into Europe. Another important river is the Danube. Um, this was probably a huge draw to a number of peoples migrating from um, Anatolia, um, Due to uh, you know them practicing agriculture, it was probably a very big draw. Um, but uh, we'll get to see uh, the foundations of uh, Neolithic uh, Greece, Italy uh, should uh, should all be covered here in this section. Uh, now, of course, Northern Europe, you're not going to get as much information because uh, well, there aren't many people in Northern Europe, if any, outside of say the Denmark uh, Peninsula. Um, England, of course, has seen people. People probably left England during the Younger Dryas and then came back. Um, but there, there's several different groups all over uh, that we'll talk about. Um, so yeah, uh, there's there's so much information to cover. Uh, I, I I almost feel bad because I'm gonna do so much more in Europe than I've done in other places. Uh, but again, it's just because I have the sources, so I, I hope everyone is ready for that. Um, in terms of number of episodes, I, I can't say just yet. Um, I'm going to try to keep it you know, in line with the other sections, at least for Asia. Uh, and, um, or not Asia, but like East Asia um, and things like that. Um, just double checking my number of episodes here. Um, yeah, I don't think it'll be. I don't think it'll be quite. Yeah, you know, maybe maybe not quite as long as I'm expecting. Um, I'll try to let you guys know when I when I know for sure. Um, but uh, yeah, for next week though, uh, there is not going to be a normal episode. I, I will have like kind of a bonus episode out. Um, it might not be out Monday. It might be out a day or two after. Um, it's just going to be a nice little review of something I've done, uh, you know, uh, recently. Um, it, and this is to help me, again, try to figure out, um, you know, how I'm going to approach this. And I've, I've been debating about this for like a month at least, about how to cover and how to move inside Europe t and in terms of geography and timeline um, so yeah that's uh, that's just uh, that's just something I have to deal with you guys don't have to worry about too much you'll, you'll just get to hear the end outcome so but if you have any suggestions um, 
yeah, let me know. <laughs> uh, I don't have much time. Obviously, we'll have next week and the week after. But, um, yeah, I hope you all have enjoyed this episode. Um, please uh, like, subscribe, wherever you listen to uh, the show. Um, I know that um, Stitcher is finally shutting down. Uh, I think it shuts down Tuesday or Wednesday of this upcoming week. Uh, its users are being, I think, pushed towards Pandora. Um, so, you know, you can listen to the show there. Uh, and I'm trying to see if there might be another type of, um, service that I can, you know, get it to automatically upload. Um, that's my goal, at least. I'm not sure if, um, if there are many places I'm not on because apparently I'm on several sites that I have never even heard of. Um, and they're automatically uploaded, but they're not included in my metrics, at least from RSS. So I don't know. Uh, there's there's probably several places I actually need to try and create accounts for. Um, but yeah, so please, any feedback, any questions, comments, please reach out to me. You can direct message me via Twitter, you can send me an email war at revpod at gmail.com um, you can comment on any of my YouTube videos and uh, yeah, I'll be sure to respond just as quickly as I can um, but yeah, thank you all for dropping by um, sorry if this episode was extra rambly um, but uh, yeah, again, I hadn't planned on it being quite this long but uh, with um, the extra stuff I forgot for Australia and Tasmania, I figured uh, it deserved a fair shake um, because I didn't want people to think I had rushed through it in two episodes when it could have filled more than that. Of course, <laughs> one of those episodes was my longest ever, an hour and 16 minutes, I think. So, yeah. Anyway, uh, thank you all again for joining me. I hope you have a good rest of your day and a good rest of your week. Thank you all. I'll see you next time. Goodbye.